Good evening and thank you for joining us. I'm Ed Hand, your host for tonight's unpublished TV panel discussion. Our topic tonight, what were you looking for in the throne speech? However you're watching or listening to our show, whether through our social media channels on Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube, or on our podcast channels, iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, iHeartRadio, and more, I'd like to remind you, you can still cast your vote on this topic at unpublished.vote and then email your MP to tell them that. Tell them why. Now, our question this week, what were you looking for in the throne speech? And at unpublished.vote, you will find the podcast on the issue, as well as articles, opinion pieces, and research on the various views on the issue. So let's get started. Joining us this evening to discuss, Charles Bird is a managing principal at Earnscliff Strategy. Bruce Campbell is an adjunct professor at York University's Faculty of Environmental Studies. Tim Gray is the executive director of the Environmental Defense Group. And Dan Kelly, president of the Canadian Federation of Independent Business. And our unpublished.vote question was, what would you like to see in the throne speech? And when you take a look at the numbers, overwhelmingly guaranteed income, 35%, PharmaCare program, 5%, increased tax on the wealthy, 10%, focus on climate change, 15%, other 10%, and none of the above was 25 And uh, Charles, what's it tell you when, when our viewers were overwhelmingly in favor of guaranteed annual income? Well, I think it speaks to the degree of economic uncertainty that COVID has landed on our front doors. And there is, um, I mean, it's on a twin track in that regard. First, people are very concerned about the safety of their own families from a health perspective. And secondly, they're very concerned about their economic prospects going forward. And one of the things that makes COVID so insidious is, in fact, the economic impacts where a great number of industries have been very negatively impacted, chiefly by consumer choice, which is to say service industries, restaurants, theaters. And it could be a long time before we see folks with the confidence to go back and do the things that we were doing eight months ago. Yeah. And so um, the uncertainty is really the, the driver more than anything else in terms of how Canadians are feeling. Do you, do you think it could a guaranteed annual income could become reality? Uh, that will be for the Minister of Finance to mm -hmm. determine. I think the cabinet retreat of a couple of weeks ago marked a pretty significant shift in the thinking of the federal government. Before that, they had been preparing some fairly major transformational initiatives. But I think the realities of what is now apparently the, the emergence of the second wave in our larger provinces um, and the singular focus on you know parents whose kids are back in school, there's just a lot more focus on COVID. And as a result, um, I thought the government really made a decision to respect that they could easily find themselves going to the poll. So to an extent, the throne speech became a grab bag and almost like a de facto mm -hmm. electoral program. Bruce, you, you're a big fan of the guaranteed annual income. Should there be one? Uh, not necessarily. I'm not, no. I'm not a big fan. It really depends. Uh, we're talking, if we're talking about a universal, yeah. uh, that means everybody gets it across the board. Um, and then if it's, uh, and then for those uh, at the top, it's, it's taxed away. Uh, if we had a, a sufficiently uh, progressive tax system, uh, I would be, I would tend to be more in, fa in favor. But yeah, the question is really, it all depends on how it's laid out or rolled out. Mm -hmm. um, so I'm not uh, just unequivocally uh, supportive. 
of it. Uh, there's also the possibility, and it's been put forward not so much in Canada, but of a, of a universal jobs guarantee. Um, again, I'm not uh, I'm not uh, um, unequivocally supportive of that either. So some some equivocation on my part. All right. Now, uh, Tim, uh, focus on climate change was the second biggest wish uh, in our unpublished vote question. Now, the federal government in we talked off screen about this. Uh, the federal government has promised big on this before. Are you taking it at face value, or have you been burned once? I think uh, people who care about climate have been burned lots of times by governments of different stripes. Um, I think, uh, you know, but this government has a track record of, of doing some stuff on, on climate that's meaningful, so I think that's encouraging. Um, a lot of the commitments that were in the throne speech are things they talked about when they got elected last year. So there's a reiteration of those short on details, uh, short on uh, spending commitments as well. So I think we're going to have to see what happens in the next few months as uh, major programs are rolled out. So we'll be looking for things in the electric vehicle space, um, address of fossil fuel subsidies, legislation of climate goals, uh, the promises they've made around uh, retrofitting buildings, et cetera. You know, really fill in the blanks because they're saying they're going to up their game. They're going to do better than the previous government. Uh, they're going to exceed the 2030 commitments they made at Paris. So we're going to have to see that legislation roll out in the fall and into next year if um, that's actually going to happen. Dan, the, 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 the Federation's happy with the extensions of the uh, the employee work uh, workers subsidy and the uh, the employer bank account. Uh, why is that better than the, uh, the Canadian Emergency Commercial Rent Assistant? You, you weren't uh, too happy with that. Yeah, no, that program has been a complete bust. Uh, the uh, rent assistant that small business rent assistance that small business desperately need has just not been materializing through the existing subsidy program. But look, I, I think where Charles was going is absolutely right, and and the government did make a choice. And there, while there were a variety of initiatives in the throne speech, I, I was pleased that the government kept its focus primarily on pandemic response. And given the news over the last few days with, uh, with case numbers ticking up across much of Canada, more business shutdowns in Quebec, British Columbia, some in Ontario, um, I think it was really smart to keep the focus on pandemic response. Uh, look, I think at the end of this, there are going to be far more people affected from an economic perspective than from a healthcare perspective, and there's both good and bad in that statement. Um, but they did expand the wage subsidy, uh, pushing it out until uh, mid-next year. Our members, my members, small and medium-sized business owners have said that they believe it's going to take a year and five months before sales return anywhere close to normal. So even the first wave of COVID-19 has not finished its economic damage to small companies. The Canada Emergency Business Account expansion is good. It may be used to help uh, uh, fill the gaps on the rent side from the failing program there. Um, just in the last few days, of course, government has also announced the transition and made changes to the transition of people from CERB to the new EI system. Uh, there is a bit of a backdoor to a basic personal in, uh, universal basic income there, uh, which does carry with, uh, with it some concerns. But the fact that they focused on the pandemic primarily is good news and, and something we support. Now, Charles, the uh, throne speech alluded to increasing tax on the wealthy. Now, is that just low-hanging fruit? It's pretty easy for 99% of the country to say, let's tax those that 1% that much more. Yeah, it's, um, 
it also has the single advantage of picking a fight with the conservatives on ground the liberals really want to be on, which is austerity. And you may have heard that signature line from the mm -hmm. throne speech that this is not the time for austerity. And so this is a very deliberate attempt to, to create a cleavage between the conservatives and the liberals. And again, this was with an eye to the admittedly unlikely event of a federal election coming up as a result of one of three confidence votes that will happen around the throne speech. And it's a wise government that takes nothing for granted, and especially at a time like this. Um, politics can be very unpredictable and very uncertain. So that more than anything stands out for me. And I, I will say that the, the Conservatives have um, accepted the challenge. Some would suggest to, so some would suggest they've taken the bait. Now, when you when you look at a situation like that, and and we've got you know the Conservatives obviously don't like it. The Liberals talking about austerity. You know, are they supposed to be playing politics in a situation like this? Like we're talking with people's lives here, right? Yeah, the game goes on. Yeah. I mean, it, yeah. it is just the reality of politics and it's also the reality of our time. I think the the way that Canada's first ministers, premiers, mayors, the prime minister have responded has been just tremendous. And especially when you when you compare it to the gong show south of the border and everything mm -hmm. that's transpired there where literally tens of thousands of lives have been lost some would argue needlessly. Um, but there is a partisan edge to our politics. There are elements of U.S.-style politics that creep into our own. This is no longer the Conservative Party of Bill Davis and Peter Lougheed. This is the Conservative Party of um, Stephen Harper and Jason Kenney. And those guys are fastball to the head. So to an extent, it's just part and parcel of the deal that you have to be very aware of political realities and you have to be positioned accordingly. That's a great analogy. Fastball to the head. Now, uh, Bruce, you're, you're a pretty big advocate. I saw your column on, on taxing the wealthy and, and would even that even make a difference or how could it make a difference? Well, the government's, uh, what it's proposed is pretty, uh, pretty modest that they left out that, you know, they talked about closing, uh, some tax loopholes, but no talk of an estate tax or a wealth tax. Uh, you know, no talk of reducing the capital gains tax to make it more or less the same as what, you know, the average person earns. Uh, so there were, there were a lot of things that it could have done to back up its, uh, uh, its, its, its promise uh, to increase uh uh, taxes on the wealthy. I mean, we're at an, an uh, we're at near a tipping point. We're at an unprecedented level uh, in terms of um, income and wealth inequality. Uh, we haven't seen anything like this since just before the Great Financial Crash in 1929 and the Great Depression uh, that followed. So this is this is an unprecedented um, time. And I do recall that the finance minister wrote a book called Plutocracy, mm -hmm. in which she was very critical uh, of the state of, of inequality and, uh, and basically made a strong case for um, increasing uh, equality. And we're, you know, we're at a stage now, we've seen uh, economic growth over the last four decades, where the lion's share of increases have gone to uh, the very top, 
uh, medium income uh, uh, has pretty much stayed uh, constant. And we've seen it exacerbate during the, during the pandemic. And so when the pandemic's over, if nothing is done, then that will continue. And it's not sustainable, just like on the climate front. Tim, uh, Alberta Premier Jason Kenney was uh, less than impressed with the throne speech, as was Saskatchewan Premier Scott Mull. They're concerned about jobs in the provincial economy. Do they have a point when not, neither were mentioned in that throne speech, and they have been the engine that's been driving the country for the last little while? Well, a couple things there. Yeah, I mean, uh, Jason Kenney likes to think that oil and gas is the only thing that exists in Canada, but it's a small portion of the overall Canadian economy. And there was uh, many mentions of the resource sector in the speech from the throne. In fact, you know, a bunch of the things around clean power, etc. We know from listening to the Natural Resources Minister um, that, you know, a lot of that is likely to end up being fossil fuel subsidies in the form of uh, new hydrogen programs or uh, subsidies to the nuclear industry for small modular reactors, etc. I don't think the federal government has forgotten about the oil and gas uh, um, industry for a second. And of course, the Canadian Association of Petroleum Producers would make sure that they never do. I think the question, though, is you know, where, where is Canada go, going to go uh, on the transition to a clean economy? You know, the, the EU has announced 1.3 billion euros in spending. The Biden camp, if they win the election, is talking about even more on a per capita basis of a pivot. China's talking about dramatic increases to its investment in, in the clean economy. If we actually took Jason Kenney's advice and doubled down on the oil sands as our uh, vehicle of choice to create an economic future, we'd be left behind. So uh, I really think that it's up to the federal government to chart a path that is towards where the rest of the world is going. As they like to say in hockey, you know, like go where the puck is going, not where it's being. And Jason Kenney uh, is no Wayne Gretzky. <laughs> That's a good analogy, too. <laughs> Charles, uh, there's a lot of spending uh, promised in, in the throne speech, and obviously we'll get more details later. But what concerns you about the amount of debt and deficit that will be taken on? Well, the current projection is a deficit of $343 billion, and some have suggested that it could be closer to $400 billion. Um, in terms of the debt, itself, I think we're, we're probably talking about a trillion dollars. So those are big numbers. Um, the good news is that the debt to GDP ratio is at about 50%, which is much better than a number of other industrialized nations and is actually lower than uh, the ratio was in the early to mid 1990s when Paul Martin was about to slay the deficit. So um, again, if it is another 12, 18, 24 months of this, um, there is no doubt that the that governments are going to have to invest very heavily in keeping businesses afloat, keeping families and people afloat. And that's going to come with a considerable cost. So it'll be interesting to see what happens in other countries. It'll be interesting to see what happens south of the border. Yeah, I guess uh, the election is probably going to be the uh, the turning point there. Now, Dan, uh, something the CFIB was a little concerned about, permanent changes to the EI system. Uh, the self-employed need pandemic support, but permanent EI coverage uh, for entrepreneurs needs careful review and is fraught with landmines, I read from the, uh, the press release. Which ones, uh, which landmines are we talking about here? Well, look, as I mentioned a minute ago, the, the change from CERB to EI, I think, is, generally speaking, a positive thing. There are millions of Canadians without work, and we need to make sure that there is income support 
for them until the end of the pandemic period, um, including for the self-employed, including for gig economy workers who, don't, who are not traditionally part of the EI system. Uh, so I don't take issue with the government, ex- the, the government looking at temporary fixes, including temporary EI fixes to make this happen. What worries me, though, is that, uh, that there is great pressure on Ottawa to make some of these temporary changes permanent to the system. One that the government did that I think is even having some short-term consequences is they've lowered the number of hours res- that you need to, to collect EI to 120 hours over the course of the past year. When I was 15, growing up in Winnipeg, I worked washing dishes at a pizza restaurant. I worked every Friday night for three hours. Uh, that was my one shift per week. My checks were 10 bucks. However, today, if I was making $15 an hour washing dishes at that pizza place, I would make $45 a week. Now, my other option is not to work and collect $500 a week, that same 15-year-old boy. Um, that is a big worry to me. Yes, we should have generous income support, but to replace more than 100% of somebody's income, I think is a bit crazy. The the, uh, the throne speech, though, also hints at expansion of permanent EI coverage to the self-employed and gig economy workers. There are many that will think that that's a great idea, including some gig economy workers and self-employed. However, we have to think about the unintended consequences. If you're self-employed, can you then lay yourself off to collect EI for uh, the next Mm. six months? These are some of the things, practical concerns that I think need to be thought through before we make permanent changes. Policy, permanent policy changes during a pandemic is a bad idea. Okay. All right. Bruce, uh, they're talking about a national standard for seniors care. And I've been very critical of all provinces in the handling of long-term care through through this uh, pandemic. Is setting standards just picking a fight with the provinces? Well, I mean, recall that something like 80% of all deaths uh, in this pandemic uh, have been at um, long-term care homes. Uh, So there's been a real uh, dropping uh, of of the ball um, on on the federal level who, you know, especially whether it's uh, for-profit or not for-profit, although the rate of death in for-profit homes is is greater. So I do think, uh, as one of the things that I that I saw in the throne speech that uh, I felt was a was a, a major step forward. Um, will uh, provinces uh, balk at this? I think they'll be in a rather weak position mm-hmm. if they kind of push back. I think I think there's a I think there's a um, a willingness to cooperate to ensure uh, that what has happened is not uh, is is not repeated or is, or is or is not extended, and I, I have to you know just a general comment on the on the throne speech. It's promises. It's not a plan. Mm-hmm. There's an array of promises, and I think we'll get a better sense of where the the liberal government is going when we see the. The fiscal update, or maybe we'll have to wait for a budget next year. I don't know, but it 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 is it is it is promises, and you know it's where where the rubber hits the road, especially once it's over, and the transition uh, a, a more equal uh, uh, society and economic growth that's more shared, as well as dealing with the looming climate. Uh, 
apocalypse that's really, really just around the corner. Uh, and I don't we we I mean compared to any um, the problems with the debt ratio. I mean the debt ratio in World War II is one hundred and thirty. That GDP ratio was one hundred and thirty percent. It's it's about fifty percent now. I think the real fiscal anchor needs to be the unemployment. Uh, rate the unemployment rate officially is about 12 13 percent but uh, you know the real rate of unemployment when you look at underemployment and people who have dropped out is over 30 percent so I think we're a long way from there before it puts pressure uh, on prices and and inflation Tim let's talk about about jobs and the uh, the government did promise they were going to create one million jobs in particular uh, clean tech green energy, knowledge economy jobs. Uh, do we have the people that can fill those those positions? Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, we know that there are uh, shortages in the tech sector. You know, Toronto, where I live, is the you know, second largest tech sector in, in the world now after Silicon Valley. So obviously this ties in with both uh, education, training, uh, and immigration policies uh, to bring people in if we can't fill the needs domestically. So government's gonna have to pay attention to that for sure. Um, but I think uh, you know, you're right to point out that you know, the, the move towards clean tech, clean energy is a job rich area. Um, and that's not just for you know, people with uh, PhDs in engineering. Uh, it's also for people that are more on the blue collar end of things, if you think of a place like Alberta, for example, uh, huge opportunities in geothermal electricity, you know, just to the south of the border and to the north in the U.S. and Alaska and in the continental states. They have 3,800 megawatts of geothermal electricity on stream now. We don't have a single watt being generated. Why is that? Um, it's same rocks. Um, but there's huge employment opportunities in laying pipe and drilling for people in Alberta and uh, long-term employment there. Um, one of the fastest growing sectors uh, of employment, of course, is the renewable energy sector, both uh, in the U.S. and Canada and Europe. So a lot of these jobs are uh, the same kind of jobs that people that have traditionally been in high-paying jobs in the resource sector, and we need to, to look at those as, as helping to uh, provide a, a future for folks that are not going to be having the growth in the oil and gas sector. And then play, things like uh, energy, deep energy retrofits, um, you know, we, one of our largest emission sources in this country is from buildings, of course, and retrofitting those at a municipal level, industrial level, residential level, incredibly job rich, both in manufacturing of insulation and materials to do that work, but also just the labor intensive nature of doing uh, deep energy retrofits employs an incredible number of jobs. So there's a lot to be done there and it generates a lot of wealth. And uh, I'm really hoping we're gonna see some concrete announcements at scale at the kind of scale that other countries that I was talking about are, are doing around the world. So we'll look forward to that. All right. Now, uh, Dan, wage subsidy is extended to 2021. Is that a reflection of how weak the, the economy is, or is this just having to deal with COVID? Uh, well, both. And yeah. the reason the economy is weak is is, is incredibly linked to, to the COVID outbreak. And then, of course, the pressures today. But yeah, no, we're not anywhere near the end of this. The economic effects of COVID-19 are going to be with us for a long, long time. We're seeing it. I expect, you know, I have 110,000 members. Uh, we're preparing that we may have 15,000 fewer members of CFIB simply because those businesses no longer exist by the end of this. Uh, our numbers are showing us that we're expecting economy-wide to have somewhere between 55,000 and uh, 225,000 permanent business bankruptcies 
directly related to COVID-19 with very few business startups happening to come in behind them. Uh, so we are seeing, like we're not at the end of this and there are a mm. lot of businesses that are hanging on by a thread and, and I suspect we'll not be there, especially as we get into the colder weather when things like restaurant patios and, and, and people being out more uh, become less of an option. Charles, I, I'm looking at the situation here when we talk about jobs, the $500 million investment in Ford and Oakville for, for creating, creating more jobs and retrofitting it. Uh, I'm, I'm usually the government doesn't get involved with private sector uh, businesses like that. Does that surprise you? Yeah, government has traditionally been lousy at choosing between winners and losers. And so um, it, it does come as a bit of a surprise. Then again, just like in the immediate aftermath of um, the Great Recession, 2008, 2009, government was really required to intercede into a number of situations. Um, so that that perhaps mitigates the decision a little bit. And jobs are a critical, critical component of the recovery. And there are some sectors, as I noted earlier, where it's going to be very difficult to bring those jobs back in the absence of sufficient consumer confidence that you can go out and go to a restaurant and dine indoors and not be running the serious mm -hmm. risk of developing COVID. Um, so to an extent, the government is going to have to choose its choose its um, uh, spots, but it's also going to have to wrap its head around the fact that there are a great many Canadians who are fundamentally tied to the service industry, that the service industry has been um, just whacked by mm -hmm. COVID and by the pandemic, that it shows no signs of mitigating. I can, you know, it's not about this Christmas, it's about next Christmas, you know, in terms of will we see anything approaching um, a serious economic recovery. And so these are these are hard decisions for governments. Uh, Dan, uh, as uh, the president of the Canadian Federation of Independent Business, I'm guessing you're not too happy that $500 million is getting dumped into Ford to retrofit. Oh, look, I mean, the, the, the history of these, uh, as Charles just said, the history of the big bailouts to, to big companies is, is, you know, there's been way, way more failures than there have been successes. I understand why there's pressure on governments to do it. Uh, but, but, you know, uh, meanwhile, we have tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of small, medium and small, medium sized companies that are slipping through the cracks of all of the government support programs. Look, I've complimented the government for you know the actions they've taken with respect to the wage subsidy. It was a slow start, but they got there. The, the emergency business account has also been a helpful measure. Rent program was was not good at all. But but for every business that's been helped, there's one that unfortunately has not been able to get any support. And and my organization does not ever ever call for business subsidies. We in fact oppose them for the reasons that was just discussed. The reason that this is different is that these businesses haven't made bad decisions. Uh, they, they're not run by incompetent people. They have been forced to close uh, due, in order to protect society. And those months where they were shut down 100% was, was, was really as a measure, it was almost like an expropriation of their right to do business. And I understand why, but at the same time, it seems grossly unfair to throw all the costs of that on those small firms. So in my view, we've got to fix that first shore up the gaps between these these support programs for small and medium-sized firms, and they are the ones that were hardest hit uh, by COVID. Retail, hospitality, the service sector, arts and recreational businesses, 
there are going to be massive, massive bankruptcy numbers coming from those sectors as we approach the fall. Those are the businesses you're talking about that are slipping through the cracks and they can't get any any access to that. They are, and the main yeah. of my membership. Where so mm-hmm. it's uh, it's a pretty tricky, uh, pretty tricky uh, day for us uh, every day at CFIB. We've taken. 60,000 calls. And just to give a little bit of, uh, from small business owners with their questions and worries about small about uh, the COVID support programs, and just to put a little bit of co- color on that, we are now taking crisis calls from business owners who are contemplating suicide. That's how, that's how serious this is. Yeah, very much so. Uh, Tim, uh, we, we were talking about the Ford plant and the investment and, and the jobs, but this is, about, this is about batteries, this is about green technology, and this is something you can get behind? Yeah, you know, I think uh, governments are always uh, attracted to uh, doing something about industries that are at a pivot point. I mean, this is the same government that's up to its neck in $12 billion to support uh, building the Trans Mountain Pipeline now, most recent ex- ex- uh, um, estimate of that. So $500 million seems like small change compared to the $12 billion for the pipeline that may produce oil. <laughs> Maybe no one will buy. Um, and I think, you know, they're uh, losing its kind of signature automotive assembly plants. Um, it's just a really bad message. I think it, it moves into a space as well. The, uh, the businesses that are involved in building parts, uh, a lot of those are going actually into EVs. There's a lot of suppliers that are sending stuff to Tesla, etc. But I think um, they really wanted to hang on to uh, electric vehicle assembly uh, facility and and maybe see if they could attract something for the future. The alternative was to, to kind of countenance the idea that there wouldn't be any more vehicle assembly in in uh, in southern Ontario, and I think that was just something that was just uh, too hard too hard mm-hmm. to stomach. Um, I guess you know as as Dan said, we'll see where that goes over time, um, whether that was the right investment. But um, I think relative to the other things that government's been throwing money at, don't have a future like fossil fuel subsidies. This is probably a better play. All right. Well, uh, gentlemen, I want to thank you for joining us on Unpublished TV. Our uh, guest, Charles Bird, Managing Principal at Earnscliff Strategy. Bruce Campbell, Adjunct Professor, York University. He's the Faculty of Environmental Studies. Tim Gray is the Executive Director of Environmental Defense. And Dan Kelly is the President of the Canadian Federation of Independent Business. Next week at Unpublished TV, we'll take a look at the political implications of the throne speech and how long the government may last. I want to thank you for watching Unpublished TV. Stay safe. I'm Ed Hand.